Good morning to you all and a big welcome to any visitors here today. Uh, I thought it is a miracle that there is a church. It's a miracle that God has gathered together a people for himself. Um, and so it shouldn't surprise us that in his providence, he actually orchestrates a service as well, because we had a, a time at the table here today, a reminder of our union with Christ, that we have um, justification in Christ by faith, the forgiveness of sins. Um, and also in the worship, a lot of the content was to do with our, uh, being in Christ. And then Eric read from this passage in uh, Colossians 1, and it kept saying, in him and uh, in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of, the gospel, uh, of, the, of God was pleased to dwell. It's, it's amazing. Today is about being in Christ, our union with Christ. And I have to confess, this is the first time in my life in public speaking I've been nervous. And it's not because I'm speaking in public. It's because of the subject matter that we're dealing with today. It is a glorious, glorious topic, our union with Christ. And before we get going, I have some amazing news that I'd like you to pray into the, the fruits of. My dad just came for a visit uh, to uh, see my gran in East London, his, his mom, uh, who my family has been praying for for years and years and years. In fact, including my parents' prayers, it must be decades, that she would come to know the Lord. And when he was here, she made a confession of faith. Yeah. Um, so if you would pray into that, because in the Lord's providence and grace, one of the people who visits her regularly is a believer herself. And so we're just praying that she will grow in godliness, in knowledge of the truth, and uh, that we will see her in heaven. Amen. So praise God. Mm. She is in her 80s. Yeah, so wonderful stuff. Um, so if I could ask uh, Alan to come up, he's going to read... Today's text for us, it's from Ephesians 1, from verse 3 to verse 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us. For adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Jesus Christ, might be to the praise of his glory in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory 
Amen. This is wonderful news, it's, um, and it is God's holy, inspired, and errant word to us so far, uh, this incredible passage. And I pray that God would impress its truth eternally upon each of our hearts. Uh, let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for gathering your church here today. We, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see the precious truth about how you've accomplished salvation for your people. Lord, would you guard me from error and would you hold each one of us firmly in the truth? We thank you, Lord, for the good news of the gospel, that we can be forgiven of our sins and that we, we can be given the perfect righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ. The Lord, may you be glorified and magnified today. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, John Owen once said that any knowledge of the Bible is utterly useless unless it forms Christ in the soul. And what he means by this is that knowledge about the truth uh, needs to lead us to Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we have no truth at all. Um, but when this knowledge does show us uh, the truth of Christ, it shows us his glory and his love and what he has done, and we are changed. We are conformed to his image and to his likeness. We are made like the one we love because he first loved us. And today we're going to be looking at what the Bible teaches about how this is accomplished. You see, Christianity is not simply believing a set of facts about God. It is about knowing the God who has chosen to dwell in you. Could there be, if you think about it, anything more wonderful that the God who created the heavens and the earth has chosen to tabernacle in a people. It's wonderful. As, as J.R. Packer puts it in Knowing God, a true Christian classic I'd really recommend that you all read. He says, What will make heaven to be heaven is the presence of Jesus and of a reconciled divine Father who loves us for Jesus' sake, no less than he loves Jesus himself. This is incredible. And this is the abiding reality for the Christian life. What a privilege. And it's so important that Packer goes on to say, communion between God and man is the end to, worth, uh, to which both creation and redemption are the means. It is the goal to which both theology and preaching must ever point. It is the essence of true religion. It is indeed the definition of Christianity. Union with Christ is the definition of Christianity. And we can see this to be true when we are examining the New Testament. It is um, something I need to ask you is, is, for you, is this your definition of what Christianity is? Because it certainly seems to be the definition that the New Testament te te teaches through the, the writings of, uh, in the letters and Jesus Christ himself. So we're going to have a look at that today. When thinking about this, um, it's a topic that is so incredibly much wider than the span of our sight. It is deeper than our bodies could plunge. It is higher than the reaches of our imagination. It is greater than the capacity of our souls. It is sweeter than tongues could taste. And it's more infinitely lovely than our hearts could ever perceive. But this leads me to a concern for myself and for each of us. 
And the first, first concern is that in, in the vastness and in view of the complexity and the, and the difficulty of this, uh, much like when we think about what is the Trinity, um, we might just pass it over and not spend time deeply invested in meditation on what the scriptures say on these things. Um, that we would shrink back and not spend time contemplating this great reality and mystery of the Christian life. The second concern is that we would think of this union with Christ solely in academic terms. That we would try and separate out its components and just speak of it in clinical analogies. But this union is actually immensely practical. It's not just something to be known or understood. It's something to be experienced, to be enjoyed, and something to cause us to worship God. It's the power for the Christian life. It's lifeblood for worship. It's energy unto holiness and obedience. It's stirring to devotion. And it is the evidence of the nearness of Christ. It is the very life of the Christian himself. Now you may say, why do I need to think hard about my union with Christ? I've got this far in my faith and in my life without thinking too much about it. But let me ask you this. Are you truly satisfied? Have you ever, ever, ever had a moment where you thought, surely there is more to the Christian life than this? Have you ever longed to change, but lacked the power to do it? Have you ever remained stuck in sin? Do you experience anxiety and fear about the future? Do you struggle with identity? Are you plagued with guilt, or shame, or condemnation? Do you feel alone? Do you miss someone who has gone to be with the Lord? Well, there is good news for you. God knows it. And he is speaking to you today with the comfort of the scriptures. And if you are not a Christian, there is good news for you as well. God knows it. And he is speaking to you today in the scriptures. Calling you to repentance and faith. Having made plain the wonders of his love towards all those who believe. In other words, God is addressing all of us today. And so with this in mind, let's go to our text. Uh, We're dealing with a a topic today in a sense. And so we're not going to spend as much time alone in uh, Ephesians, this particular text, as we normally would do. Um, But uh, you may have noticed that in our reading, the phrase, in him and in Christ, kept appearing. In fact, I think a few of them have been bolded on the the front of of the cover there. Um, it actually appears about ten times in this passage in total, the concept. And it's an, an, uh, this idea of us being in Christ and Christ being in us is what we call union with Christ. It is used 200 times in Paul's letters alone. That we are in him, that we are in Christ, in the beloved. All these kinds of phrases. And it's because we are. Um, should give us an idea of the importance um, in, the, in, a, in our understanding of our faith. It is so central that there are no benefits to the gospel apart from it. It's the means by which the gospel is applied to us. It is the fountain from which every blessing in the Christian life flows. It's the basis on which we will inherit all things with Christ. It is the reality by which we have forgiveness of sins, the free gift of righteousness which comes from Christ through faith. And today, after this preach, I'm sure that you will see it on every page of the New Testament. 
more or less. It's everywhere. But what does it mean? Well, in summary, it means that by an act of God, the Christian is identified with Jesus Christ in his death for people's sins, as well as his resurrection power, so that we are credited with Christ's righteousness and share in his holiness. I'm going to say that again. It's an act of God where he identifies, think of it, identity, identifies the believer with Christ in his death for your sins, in his resurrection power, so that by faith we are credited with Christ's righteousness and share in his holiness. And we can see this language in uh, Romans 6, 3 to 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And in 1 Corinthians 1.30, And because of him you are in Christ, who has become to us from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now I use the phrase identified with Christ in that definition that I gave. Because union with Christ is a matter of identity. So when people say, understand your identity, what they mean to be saying biblically is, understand that you are united with Christ by a gracious act of God. Now, this is, in fact, a great mystery that we are joined with Christ, uh, that we, that we uh, have a new identity, having been united to the one who fills all in all, is a completely majestic thing. Thinking about this union, though, requires our imaginations, because uh, it's a reality that seems too good to be true. We live in a world of disappointments where our family, our spouses, our jobs, our possessions, human hopes, parties, our own selves, alcohol, drugs, sex, friends, all of these things let us down. And in light of this universal experience where everything lets us down, it seems impossible, almost offensive, that something this good could be true. But... This union comes as a free gift to all those who come to to the Lord in faith. What we call the empty hand of faith. Recognizing that everything else lets us down. Recognizing our spiritual bankruptcy and the need for a savior. And then the one who fills all in all fills us. But helpfully, scripture gives us a couple of pictures to help us understand this pretty tricky idea. The first example is where Paul describes this union as something like marriage. Ephesians 5, 28 to 32. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And Jesus said something similar about marriage in Mark 8. Therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. 
What God, therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. It's interesting, right? That the two shall become one flesh. But um, I, I look around now, and the married couples consist of two bodies. Um, I don't see some strange four-legged, four-armed being cartwheeling around the place, right? You are, you are, still, you are still two people. You can try. You, it's, <laughs> So, <laughs> I can't get that image out of my head now. <laughs> yeah. So those of you who are married or have attended a wedding, have you, have, you've seen the minister say, uh, I now pronounce you husband and wife, or I now pronounce you man and wife. And similarly, in union with Christ, it's something that God pronounces, which accomplishes the spiritual joining of, of Christ and the church, of Christ and each believer. So... As an important note here, before we go on to the next example, to be united with Christ is what it means to be saved. And to be united with Christ is what it means to be the church, as we are the body and he is the head. And so it is false to make a distinction between a doctrine of salvation and a doctrine of of the church, in a sense that makes them exclusive. It is not possible for you to think of yourself as in Christ without thinking of yourself as in the church. And so that is why it is very serious to not attend church. It is to reject God's declaration of your union with Him through the body of Christ. (laughs) It is essentially hubris to say that I will have my union with Christ apart from my union with his body, whom he has called together to worship him. Uh, The New Testament uh, doesn't allow for this separation. The two are a a similar reality. And and since our personal union with Christ is part of a corporate union with Christ, it's inconsistent to participate in one while not participating in the other. Uh, He is the bridegroom of a bride. He is the head of a body. He is the one who has gathered a a body together, not scattered it apart. And so his work is to unite. The devil's work is to separate. It's to cause disunity and division. And that's why Paul takes this so seriously when he's writing to the Corinthians. Um, This all being said, it might be helpful also to speak about what union with Christ is not. It is not that we are joined in substance or in his divinity with him. We are not absorbed into God. When a husband and wife are married, they remain two bodies, right? They remain two personalities, two personhoods. Uh, But yet, their joining is so intimate, the spiritual joining is so intimate that it is said that they have become one flesh. But yet they do remain separate beings, and so it is with our union with Christ. He remains the person of Christ, and we remain a distinct person too. He remains one being with the Father and the Spirit, and we remain a distinct being too. He remains God, and we remain human. He remains the uncreated creator, and we remain a creation. He remains distinctly God. He is holy. He is unchanging. And yet we are so vitally, full of lifely, joined with him, that it is said we are in Christ and Christ lives in us. That is why it is a mystery. 
And the second example is where Jesus refers to this union as that of a vine and its branches. In John 15, 1-6, he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Already. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. You see, apart from the vine, a branch has no life. I and mean, this is why Acts 17.28 says, In him we live and move and have our being. Our life comes from Christ. And for we have been joined to him, and he is the one that nourishes, that gives life, and causes us to bear fruit. Now Paul calls this a mystery because that's precisely what it is. It's an idea that's so high and so holy and so majestic that the most brilliant mind can barely skim its surface. And yet it's so simple and so available that a child can lay hold of it in a, in a way that they can have fullness of life and godliness in Christ Jesus. It's a mystery not to be solved, but a mystery to be received, to be experienced, to be lived, and to be celebrated. And it's a mystery that we will never fully understand. But it is yet a reality to which the Holy Spirit bears witness in our hearts. Nevertheless, there is a great deal that the Bible teaches on this so that, we, um, so that we can understand it to the extent that we are able to experience these benefits in Christ. Unlike what the church would have, uh, the false church would have um, its people believe, um, the Roman Catholics historically would not let people have Bibles. Um, they would say, you can't, you can't understand that. We have to explain it to you. But God has revealed himself to us in his word in a way that all believers can be taught by the Holy Spirit. Because we have one teacher. Call no man your father. Call no man your teacher. Because we have the Holy Spirit. And so today we're going to examine what the Bible teaches about our union with Christ. And um, my prayer is that we would grow in knowledge so that it would lead to growth in, in love for God. And, and confidence in what he has done for us. That we may enjoy peace and life and joy in our lives. As a starting point, let's consider why this union with Christ is necessary in the first place. Oh, we make it plain in our teaching at this church that uh, the scripture teaches that all have fallen short of the glory of God. That all have sinned. And that the wages of sin is death. That there is a coming judgment at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he, will, he is returning to judge the living and the dead. And all those who are found to be in Christ um, will dwell with him forever in heaven, will be glorified, and all those who are outside of Christ will be the branches gathered up and cast into the fire. Uh, David, um, this, this idea, um, by the way, the Scripture teaches that 
Not only do all sin, but all are born in sin. They are by nature sinners. That concept we call uh, original sin. And David knew it. He confessed it in Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Not meaning that his conception was a sinful act by his parents. He's saying that in that conception, he was brought forth in sin. Behold, in iniquity I was brought forth. He understood it. And every honest person who has had his eyes open to the truth of the gospel confesses the same thing. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And the New Testament makes it clear why. Humanity fell in the sin of Adam. And uh, if, if we look at it in Romans 5, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and, de- and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And by type, he means a head, a, a representative. Um, so he was a representative in which all of humanity fell. And so because of Adam's sin, death spread to all of humanity. Adam's what we call a federal head. He's what we call a representative of humanity. And so in his sinning, we all fell. And while every person after Adam also committed sin against God individually, the Bible teaches that all of humanity stands condemned because they are in Adam. Now there are those of you who would say, perhaps, hopefully not many, um, well... That's not fair. And then there are also maybe a few people here today who say, well, I do not believe in God, so what does all of this have to do with me? To you, I would say, that is much like a criminal standing before a judge in a court and saying, well, I do not accept the authority of this court. It does not exist. My friend, that is not how authority works. The court has authority over you because you are in the land of the court. Similarly, God has authority over you because you are in his universe. God has authority over you because he created you. And so if he declares you have violated his law and commands you to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ, then he has the right to do so. And one day you will stand before his great throne and there will be no reply. There will be no witty retorts. There will be no invoking of moral objections against God, there will be righteousness and justice according to God's law. But enter union with Christ. Romans 5 then goes on to say, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This is wonderful news that there is a lost Adam. And this last Adam's name is Jesus Christ. He is the new federal head. He is the new representative. The one born without sin. 
and the one who never sinned. And so that many may become righteous in him, he lived a perfect life. And 1 Corinthians 15.45 calls Jesus the last Adam. Romans 8 calls him the firstborn among many brethren. And so uh, where being in the last Adam brought death, so in the first Adam brought death, being in the last Adam in Christ brings life. And so I hope you can, you can now see why it's important that we understand this concept of original sin. If we, if we understand the idea of our sinful, sinful state of being in Adam, then it makes sense of the salvation of, of us being in the, in the last Adam. The New Testament teaches that in the same way that Adam's sin was counted to us all, Christ's righteousness is counted to us in Christ through faith. And so to deny the diagnosis of the disease is to deny the cure itself. Hmm. To say that we can have uh, righteousness through union in Christ, um, but not not, um, condemnation for sin in Adam is an impossibility. It is possible that we have union with Christ in contrast to that we were in Adam. Then we have to ask, how though is it possible that God became the last Adam? How is it that we can have a new representative? How can God represent man? Well, for that answer, we have to go to John 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was God incarnate. This is the great miracle of history. This is the great miracle of the Bible. That the creator of the heavens and the earth entered into his own creation. That the high king of heaven would humble himself as a man and lay aside his own crown of glory and exchange it for a crown of thorns. That the giver of life may lay his life down. That the one to whom all creation owes its service would come not to be served, but to serve. That he who has to everything that is living given his breath that he would give up his final breath. God in Christ, without ceasing for a moment to be who he is, became fully who we are, so that by the Holy Spirit we may be united with Christ and so enjoy fellowship with the Father forever. This is the miracle of incarnation. And according to John 17.3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And how does this union then accomplish salvation? Well, this is where we're going to see how today's text demonstrates the application of everything that we've considered so far. In verse 3, we see that all spiritual blessings are ours in Christ. What are they? Well, According to our text, they include adoption, glorious grace, 
redemption, forgiveness, revelation of his will, an inheritance, and the seal of the Holy Spirit of God. What spiritual blessings these are indeed. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Are you seeing how union with Christ is the way in which we receive all these things? This is the the consistent message of the whole of the New Testament. It teaches us that our union with Christ is how we receive this salvation. Our election is in Christ. Our regeneration is in Christ. Our calling is in Christ. Our justification is in Christ. Our sanctification is in Christ. And one day when He returns, our glorification is in Christ. So let's look at each of those. Well, verse 4 of our text tells us that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And verse 5 tells us that we were predestined for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. This should blow our minds. God knew you before creation itself. And He loved you even then. He chose us on the basis of His love and of His mercy not on the condition of any of our choices. He did not choose us because he thought we would be the most holy. I certainly would not have been chosen. Or the most likely to love him. Similarly, as as it was said of Israel in Deuteronomy 7, so it is of us, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. You're a treasured possession to him. Out of all the other peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. How gracious God is that he he has set his affections upon us in Christ and chosen us in Christ. And then, having chosen us, God gave us new hearts. I needed a new heart. We all needed a new heart. And he did this because according to Ephesians 2.1, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Romans 1 verse 30 says, we were God-haters. It's got a hyphen. God-haters. Genesis 6.5 says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. No good. No good. And uh, so we were totally depraved, having nothing good in us at all. But God, according to Ephesians 2, 4-5, being rich in mercy with the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. How gracious is God that he would take spiritually dead rebels and make them living stones alive in Christ. And then, having given us new hearts, God calls us to himself. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The Lord of the universe called your name and drew you to himself. There is nothing that could prevent that grace from having its effect. There is no resistance that could not finally be overcome 
by God's grace. How gracious is God that he would make his gracious call of you into his kingdom an utterly irresistible one. And then, having called us to himself, God justified us. Romans 8.1 tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because, according to 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And how did he become our justification? Well, he died for the sins of all of God's people, meaning that the wrath of God against the sins of all of God's people was laid fully upon Jesus. He drank the cup of God's wrath against those for whom he died. And in his death, our sins were heaped upon his shoulders. And through his resurrection, his righteousness is applied to us through faith. And this is how we are justified in Christ, because in him we are made right before God. In the words of our text in Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses. How gracious God is that he would take our sin upon himself and give to us in exchange his perfect righteousness. And then, having justified us, God is sanctifying us. Hebrews 10.10 says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus' work has washed us clean. And so God looks upon us and sees us as washed ones. He sees the very righteousness of his own son. And more than that, more than just seeing us this way, he is making us this way also in this life. Galatians 2.20 puts it this way. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the Holy Spirit, uh, by the, sorry, by the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. See, Christ is alive and is at work in us by the Holy Spirit. He's making us more like him, making our daily life uh, to grow up towards the fullness of Christ who is the head. How gracious God is that he would not only declare us to be washed clean in Christ, but that his spirit is at work in us to make us holy in this life now. And then finally, having sanctified us, God will glorify us. In the words of Colossians 3, 4 that you've heard many times over the last few months, when Christ appears, who is your life, then you will also appear with him in glory. And 1 John 3, 2 says, this, it means this, that when he appears, we shall be like him. We will be perfected in Christ. And we see this image in many passages in scriptures, but a favorite of mine is that of Romans 8, verse 30, which says, um, oh, just saying, we call this the golden chain of redemption. It's the unbreakable progression of God's saving work. Listen to this. It says that those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What is this saying? If you are predestined, you will be called. If you are called, 
you will be justified. And if you are justified, you will be glorified. Because the gospel is a finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not something that can be undone. It is not the Catholic doctrine that you can lose your salvation when you commit a mortal sin. You lose the grace of justification. God's work is torn in two, in shreds. It's, it's crazy. That is surely the opposite of the gospel. That what God has begun, he will bring to completion on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is amazing news for us. And because of Christ, we know that we will be glorified at the day of his visitation. We know that God will ensure that we persevere in the faith. And we know that not a single one of those given by the Father to the Son will be plucked from his hand. That's it's in um, John 6. It's like, this is the will of the Father, that of all whom he has given me, I lose none of it, but raise it up on the last day. All that God has given to the Son will be raised up from the last day. And those of you who have the Holy Spirit bearing witness in your heart that you have been given by, by the Father to the Son, you can know that you will be raised up on the last day and be together with God in glory. And uh, that's why, you know, that uh, Colossians 1.27 states that Christ in you is the hope of glory. Right? Because Christ is in you, your glorification with him is guaranteed. And you will be delivered from the, deli- from the presence of any sin, from any brokenness, from any disease, from any sadness, from any mourning, from any loss, from any pain. It's guaranteed. And in the words of our text in Ephesians 1.14, the Holy Spirit is himself the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of that. God gives himself as assurance of what God will ultimately do for us. How gracious is God that not only would He declare us to be, um, not only would He declare us to be saved, but that He would ensure that would be, we would be glorified with Him, that He would cause us to persevere to the end. So, as we conclude, I would just like to ask you a question, in accordance with the song that we sang earlier: Is God's grace not just amazing? See, in Christ we were elected. We were created, we were regenerated, we were called, we were crucified, we were buried, we were resurrected, we were justified, we were ascended, we are seated in heavenly places in, God, in Christ's heavenly session, we are sanctified, and one day we will be glorified. Praise be to God. And so we end where we began, with questions I asked of you. Are you truly satisfied? Have you ever thought, surely there is more to the Christian life than this? Have you ever longed to change, but not had the strength to do it? Have you ever remained stuck in sin? Are you plagued by guilt with shame and condemnation? Do you miss someone who's gone to be with the Lord? Do you struggle with identity? Are you alone? If so, as a Christian, our union with Christ proves to us that God loves us. In fact, He loves us so much that he not only chose you and saved you, but as it later says in Ephesians 1.18, he considers you to be his glorious inheritance. Once a rebel sinner, justified by grace alone, he considers us to be his glorious inheritance in the saints. Wow. Is there no truth 
that is greater than this? How can it be? That, um, that we have our identities now as precious, adopted, and loved children of God who consider us, considers us his, his own glorious inheritance. I say not. So my, my dear brothers and sisters, remember that you are in Christ and that Christ is in you. That, through, that in, even though in Adam there was death and guilt and shame and in condemnation, now in Christ there is life, freedom, righteousness, peace and joy forever. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word to us today. Please help us to understand and live out this great mystery of being united with Christ. Lead us in the still waters of your peace and your joy and bring us confidence as we await the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for making us alive in Christ and for snatching us out of the pit where we were perishing. And for those here today who may not know you, I pray that you will use this message to show them your love and forgiveness for those who repent of their sin and believe in the name of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Now may the Lord, our, our Jesus, Jesus Christ himself, and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word.